Welcome to the first session of our second ever member content series, Practical Mindfulness at Home. My name's Anna Greenwald and I'm the founder and CEO here at On The Goga. I'm also our lead mindfulness coach and a registered yoga teacher. I'm incredibly excited to have the opportunity to be leading this series for all of you because at the end of the day, practical mindfulness is where On The Goga all began. Before we get into our first topic today, let's just really quick cover what you're gonna need. So these webinars were designed to be really interactive. It'll be helpful if you have some or all of the above, a writing implement and piece of scratch or note paper. This is just for jotting your own notes. There are gonna be a couple of exercises where writing things down will be helpful. You can also use your computer. You can use just a Word document. There may be some of you out there who are also listening to this after it's been recorded. That's great too. If you hear me referencing the chat box, it's coming from all the people who are listening as we record right now. Let's actually use that chat box really quick. I'd love to start this conversation today um, of the stress response by just asking, what's something that calms you all right now? So you can type in that chat box, anything that you feel calms you at home. It can be conversations. It can be activities that you do. Oh, nice. I'm seeing yoga and lavender, music, deep breathing, knitting and crocheting, gardening. Absolutely. Going outside, I've been finding that, especially during this time, the simple act of just walking outside and feeling that fresh air is really, really helpful. One thing I've been noticing that calms me a lot right now is even just really wonderful audio content. Like uh, I've been listening to a lot of Audible just to get my mind away from the things that it kind of starts to spiral to as we all do throughout the day. Nancy says, nurture with nature. I love that. Okay, so we're going to get into today a little bit about calm, a little bit about stress, but I really quick want to just touch on why we're here. As always, through these webinars we've been doing are designed for you. This next three-week series is going to have some virtual conversations about stress, mindfulness, and meditation. And each week is designed just to help you all learn some really practical tools and skills for supporting yourselves and supporting your families and supporting your friends and community during what for all of us in our individual and communal ways right now is a really challenging time. But my hope is also that these skills and tools we learn will carry with you into the future. So this week, we're going to begin with the stress response. And now I know that for some of you out there, you might be thinking, I don't know, 60 minutes talking about stress might not sound very calming, but it's actually a crucial part of practicing mindfulness. So we're going to get to why, but I'd also love to just hear from some of you out there why you are interested in learning about your own stress. Or maybe you just have thoughts or ideas about how stress is coming up right now in your life. I know that at On The Goga, we spend a lot of time talking to people, whether they're individuals or leaders, about the different types of stress that might be coming up in our lives. And some of those stresses are situational, right? They have to do with our environment or the situations around us at work. And then some of them are stresses that are more unique to specific tasks we have to do. We're all feeling a lot of different types of stress right now. And 
the reason that we wanted to start having a conversation about stress is because the more that we can understand stress, the more that we can manage it. When we're stressed is actually the most important and most challenging time to practice mindfulness. If we can understand and be mindful of our stress, mindfulness in other areas of our lives actually becomes easier. But also when we can understand our stress, we can understand how all the benefits of mindfulness actually work. We're gonna learn in the next couple of weeks all about what mindfulness is and what it does for our brains and bodies. Um, and I like to you know, tell people all the time when we have conversations in person or virtually that mindfulness and all these benefits that we might read about, it's not just magic. Mindfulness, the act of being aware of our thoughts and our experiences actually changes how our brain and body interact physiologically. So if we're gonna understand mindfulness, let's start with understanding stress. And if we're gonna talk about stress today, let's just take a moment to define what stress is. What do you think of when you think of stress? You could give me specific examples of things that are currently causing you stress, or you could give me an example of what you think stress is. Awesome, so I'm seeing Stephanie says, things you can't control. I'm seeing anxiety, feeling overwhelmed. Yeah, Susan just said COVID-19. That's what I think of when I think of stress. Sarah said headaches, tightness in chest, fear, adrenaline, which we will definitely come back to. Tension. Joan was saying, my stress started when my husband and I spent 24 hours a day together when he got laid off and my office closed. We have both worked every day of our married lives, so this is totally new. And I think that's really important, right? Because stress isn't just, you know, being with someone 24 hours a day, but stress is also breaking habits, right? Being in new situations. Um, Amy said deadlines that are impossible to meet. And then Anne said clenched teeth. And I think that that is actually a beautiful transition into the definition of stress. When we look up stress just in the dictionary, stress actually comes from the Latin word strictus, which means to be drawn tightly, like this rope that you can see on the screen if you're watching. When you look in the dictionary, the first definition of stress you'll see is pressure or tension exerted on a material object, right? So literally to be drawn tightly. The example for this is when you have a bridge that cars drive over, that bridge is under stress. So we can understand that, right? Stress is actual physical pressure or tension exerted on a material object. Similarly, the next definition you'll see is the emotional definition. So a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or demanding circumstances. And so all of the things that you guys have already mentioned, working from home, having impossible to meet deadlines, adjusting to COVID-19, these are adverse or demanding circumstances that create that emotional and sometimes physical feeling of strain or tension, like Anne was saying, clenched teeth. The definition of stress that I find most helpful is actually a psychological definition of stress. Now, this definition was coined back in the 1930s by a man, a psychologist named Hans Selye. And he says that stress is the nonspecific response of the body to any demand for change. Let's break this down. He's saying it's the nonspecific response of the body. 
So if I were to ask all of you out there, where do you feel stress most in your body? Feel free to type in the chat. Where do, when you feel stress in your body, where do you feel it? Headaches, our head, our shoulders, our neck, neck and shoulders, lots of neck and shoulders, stomach, you can feel it in our muscles, maybe our jaw. I feel stress oftentimes right in the V of my ribs, right in the V of my rib cage. Right. It's nonspecific. So the physical experience of stress can feel different depending on the type of stress. It can feel different person to person, but it is a response of the body. So if you take one thing away from today, let it be that stress is not some arbitrary emotional state that you can choose to be in or not choose to be in. Stress is actually a physical response of your body, just like your heart rate. And this response of the body, the stress response that we're going to talk about today results from a demand for change. So the example I always like to give is imagine that you're in the kitchen cooking something, talking with your friend or family member, and you lean back to put your hand on the counter, but you actually put it on a hot burner. What's going to happen? Your hand is, the nerves in your hand are going to send a signal to your brain that says, uh-oh, if you don't move your hand away from this hot burner, all your hand's going to burn off. So your body says, I better change. Your brain says, I better change this. And you physically remove your hand from the burner, right? Your pain response, that is part of your stress response, is your brain and your body interacting saying, uh-oh, something's dangerous. Something needs to change. And that is what precipitates our stress response. So we're actually going to dive into what that process looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. So if any of you are watching this right now and you can see this person holding their newspaper and it's just on fire, a lot of the time right now, that's what stress feels like, right? Stress can come from a million different things. Reading the paper, it can come from not being able to go outside, it can come from financial uncertainty, changes in habits, right? So let's look at what's actually happening when we experience stress. In order to experience the stress response, the first thing we need is an environment. Right now, our environment is literally wherever we are sitting. Right now in my environment, I'm sitting at my desk next to a window in my office. You guys out there can feel free to type what is in your environment right now. Environments in this little clip art that you might be watching as we're going is trees, right? So you imagine the stress response is a biological evolutionary response that we've had for a long time. So you can even imagine when we were cavemen in the woods, we had this stress response. And so our environment might've been in the middle of the forest, right? Yeah, Megan's saying she's listening to this from her basement. Joan says, in my dining room with my dog laying next to me, surrounded by plants. Joan, that sounds lovely. And I really love that environment. <laughs> we have to have our environment. As a human, we take in our environment through our perception filters. So our perception filters can literally be our sensory organs, right? They can be our eyeballs, they can be our ears, they can be our skin and our nerves, right? They can be our taste buds. Anything that helps us take in information from our environment through our five senses is part of our perception filter. So to give you an example of that, sound waves are just vibrations in the air. So right now there are vibrations leaving my vocal cords, making ripples through the air, hitting my microphone. That is getting converted into electrical signals that are being sent 
through the internet to your computers. Your computer is then taking that information and pushing out sound through your speakers. Again, new vibrations that are hitting your eardrums. And that eardrum vibration vibrates the little bones inside your inner ear. That little vibration vibrates the little ears, ear hairs inside your ear. And your body takes that vibrational energy and converts it into an electrical impulse that hits your brain. So that's pretty incredible, right? That's our sensory organs acting as our perception filter. But the other thing that can act as a perception filter are things that are not necessarily objectively physical. For example, raise your hand if you really enjoy rainy days. 10, 14 people that say they love rainy days. Someone even wrote in the chat, I do, I love the smell of rainy days, right? So it's not just the visual of the rainy days, but it's the smell of the rainy days. It might be the sound of the rainy days. Now put your hand down if you like rainy days and then raise your hand if you're really not a big fan of rainy days. You're like, you know what? I prefer the sun, me on the beach with sun streaming in is ideal. All right, so we've got about 15, 16 people raising their hands saying that they prefer non-rainy days. They prefer the sunny days. You could take two people, one person that prefers a rainy day, one person that prefers a sunny day. They could be experiencing the exact same sensory inputs, the same smells, the same visuals, looking out the same window. And yet one person's perception of the rainy day is, uh-oh, I don't like rainy days. And one person's perception of the rainy day is, oh, I love the greenness that's going to happen from all of this good rain, right? Like Tracy was saying. So our perception filters can be physical, our sensory organs, but they can also be psychological, things like our age, uh, our circumstances, our past experiences. I'd love to offer up to you all, anyone have ideas of things that might be acting as our perception filter that are psychological, things about us that might affect how we see the world around us. One example I love to give for this is how much coffee I've had in the morning, right? Depending how much coffee I've had, if someone comes up and wants to talk to me, I might have a different perception of that situation. Philip said your past experiences. Absolutely. Your past experiences, whether it's with a person or in life or in work, determine how we perceive situations. All of this environmental stimuli is coming in, passing through your perception filter and hitting you as a person. So as a person, you have a brain, right? And the part of your brain responsible for interpreting sensory inputs is called your amygdala. So basically, that part of your brain that gets the little information zap that you just heard a sound is called your amygdala. It's the part of your brain that's responsible for understanding the colors that you see around you. It's the part of your brain that can even feel when you pay attention the chair that you're sitting in, right? Or maybe you're standing and you can feel your feet against the floor or in your shoes. So your amygdala is responsible for taking in sensory inputs, but it also has another really important job. It has to decide, all right, is this sensory input that I'm taking in positive? For me, that would be the smell of an Annie Ann's pretzel, right? Or the smell of fresh baked cookies. Both make me feel like this is a great day. I'm happy, life is good. If you're following along, you can see the little man on the screen is smiling. What are some sensory inputs, smells, sights, sounds that make you all smile. So I said one of my favorite smells is the smell of fresh baked cookies, but one of my favorite sounds is the sound of just an oar pulling through water, like in a rowboat. I don't know why that sound just really makes me happy. 
I love Stephanie said the sound of the Keurig, right? The coffee machine, the smell of chocolate, the sound of birds. Yeah, my eight month old grandbaby giggling, fresh baked brownies, right? Not just the smell of fresh baked brownies, but if you see fresh baked brownies, right? It's like, ooh, yum, love that. Your amygdala can process positive sensory inputs. Most of the sensory inputs that your brain processes, it categorizes them as irrelevant sensory inputs. So for example, if you close your eyes right now and you try to imagine what is the detail of the socks that I'm wearing right now, or if you're not wearing socks right now, maybe you can imagine what is the detail of the floor underneath of me right now. Maybe you can get a vague idea Maybe some of you are over there thinking, I know exactly what socks I'm wearing today because they're my cool donut socks and I love them, right? But probably for most of you, you can open your eyes and look now. There was some vague understanding of those sensory details, but when you really open your eyes and look, you notice a lot of details that you didn't see before. That's because if the brain spent all of its time processing the millions of pieces of sensory information that we're perceiving every second, we would become overwhelmed. It's the job of our conscious brain to be able to focus our attention. What happens if you have an experience with your stress response where the stimuli is dangerous, right? What if there's a terrifying predator in your environment? Well, that stimuli is going to pass through your perception filter. If we're using the example of trees and you know, you're a little caveman making your caveman dinner over your caveman fire and you hear, the growling of a saber-toothed tiger. And my team always tells me that I'm really, really good at making impressions of saber-toothed tigers. So that was a very accurate impression if you've never heard one. Uh, but you hear the growl of a saber-toothed tiger. That sound wave is gonna hit your ear, right? Pass through your perception filter as a person. It's gonna hit your amygdala and it's probably not gonna feel very positive, right? Your brain is going to say that is a dangerous sensory input. What are some other stimuli that can feel dangerous? This doesn't necessarily mean that the stimuli has to feel life-threatening. It can just be, what is something that you might see, hear, notice, even think that might send your brain into thinking, uh-oh, this isn't so good. Yeah, being tailgated, strong winds, a car horn. Yeah, I live in Philadelphia, so even just the red lights of taillights when I'm driving on 76. Yeah, Joan said people driving crazy. Um, yeah, for some of us, it can even just be a picture on our newsfeed, right? Um, my alarm in the morning, a barking dog. And I love, Amy, this example of a barking dog because for some people, right, they, we might, our perception filter might mean that we perceive the bark of a dog as dangerous. But for a lot of people out there, we might think, oh, if I hear a barking dog, I would smile, right? Like I love the sound of dogs barking. So that's a great example of how for different people, different things are gonna trigger that stress response, right? After our brain perceives that a stressor is dangerous, it's gonna ask a follow-up question before it triggers our stress response. It's gonna say, do I have sufficient resources to handle this threat? So let's say you're back in that cave and you hear the growl of the saber-toothed tiger, but you have a really advanced caveman button that you can press and you know, a gate drops down in front of your cave and you saved your family from the saber-toothed tiger. Probably your stress response is not going to be super activated, right? But probably you have like a caveman loincloth and maybe a spear 
and you don't have sufficient resources to handle that threat. And so your brain reacts and says, I don't have sufficient resources, so I'm going to trigger the stress response, right? Now, again, this isn't happening consciously. Your brain's not saying, oh, a saber-toothed tiger, I better trigger my stress response. This is happening in a fraction of a second, right? But for most of us right now, and in the modern world, our stressors aren't biological stressors, right? It's not a saber-toothed tiger. They're psychological stressors. Now, in this particular environment, that's actually not entirely true. We are all right now dealing with a biological stressor, right? The fear of getting sick potentially, right? But that also leads to a lot of additional stressors that come from fears, thoughts, predictions of the future, worries, anxieties. They can even look like just getting that email in all caps, right? What are some stressors that you're experiencing right now? Things that you might see, uh, feel, aren't necessarily threatening to your biological body, but that trigger scared thoughts in your mind. A couple of the examples you gave are great, like the sound of an alarm might trigger that fear response. Job security, absolutely uncertainty of our financial future. And so we can start to see that when our environments around us are producing all of this uncertainty, right? Potential job loss, boyfriend losing. Yeah, someone said my boyfriend losing his patience because our patience is shortened when we're in our stress response. Missing my children, right? Having to juggle home and work during the workday, creating new habits. When we're constantly triggered with stress, we can understand how we might be sitting here feeling physically not great, right? Because the stress response is happening in our bodies. So we're going to break down what's actually happening during that stress response right now. Someone actually mentioned one earlier in this webinar. What are the stress hormones that are the two main stress hormones that are acted, activated during your stress response? Cortisol, absolutely. <laughs> and adrenaline, beautiful. Here's how cortisol and adrenaline work in the stress response. The first thing that happens is when stressful situation occurs or we perceive a stressor, right, is adrenaline is released. It happens within fractions of a second, right? Adrenaline is considered the fight or flight hormone. So when adrenaline is released in our body, it feels like our heart rate going up, breathing increases, energy supply and awareness increases. So our body is essentially trying to make the glucose supply in our bloodstream readily available so that we can literally fight a saber-toothed tiger and make quick sensory decisions of the things that are right in front of us. So the metaphor that I like to use, again, being from Philadelphia, uh, our public transit system is called SEPTA. And you know, if I'm walking out of my office and I turn to my side and I see a SEPTA bus coming for me, my eyes are going to take in that bus coming down the street. And then my past experiences are going to know, wow, you know, those bus drivers can really have places to be. I don't know if they're going to stop for me. Adrenaline is going to be released, a spike of adrenaline so that I jump out of the way of the SEPTA bus. The other way to relate to this feeling is the feeling of exercising really vigorously, right? Sweating, 
your heart rate increases. What are some other experiences of adrenaline being released in your body that you guys have experienced? Besides sweating, yeah, crying, we can feel lightheaded. Someone gave an example of a situation which was just in interviews, right? You're like, I'm just interviewing. Why is my heart rate going really up? My mouth feels like it's getting dried out, right? That is the feeling of adrenaline in your body. This example here that you might see on the screen is waking up late. Has anyone ever had that feeling when you sleep through your alarm, right? We've all had that feeling. And so as soon as we wake up late, we get the spike of adrenaline in our bloodstream. So then how does cortisol get released? Well, after the spike of adrenaline, cortisol is released within minutes after the stressful event occurs. And basically what cortisol is trying to do is it's that feeling after you've jumped out of the way of the SEPTA bus, you just kind of feel a little uneasy walking down the street. You might feel a little shaky. You might feel a little frazzled. Cortisol is this slow release that's basically trying to make sure that there are no other threats in your environment that you need to address. This is what the perfect stress response looks like, right? You've got your adrenaline spike, and then your cortisol is released until it thinks that the stress is gone, and then you return down to baseline. So again, to recap cortisol, it's called the stress hormone, right? What it's doing is it's diverting blood flow from our major systems. So digestion, right? It, when we have cortisol uh, running through our bloodstream, our brain's like, we might have to fight another lion. You don't really need to finish digesting that hamburger, or you don't really need to be at your highest level creativity or be really good at processing numbers for an Excel spreadsheet. It shuts down those symptoms or those system functions until it thinks that the stressful event has passed. But what happens if we have multiple stressful events occurring throughout the day, right? We wake up late, right? And then, oh my gosh, I forgot about the Zoom meeting that I had at 9 a.m. And then I go to log on to Zoom, but I can't get the app to open. And then I get an angry email from my boss saying, where are you? The Zoom meeting was supposed to start at 9 a.m. And the cortisol just starts going up and up and up and up. And when it comes back down, it doesn't quite return to baseline. And that difference between baseline and cortisol is what is called chronic stress. So acute stress is like the visual we saw where we get the adrenaline spike and the cortisol comes back down. It's a moment of stress. But chronic stress is when we have so many physical or psychological stressors occurring in our lives that our cortisol doesn't quite return back to normal. So normally during presentations, when I'm standing in front of people, this is a really funny part of the presentation because people are like, Anna, we were supposed to be talking about the stress response and how to manage it. And you just told me that everything in my life is stressing me out and my cortisol levels are just going to keep going up and up and up and I have chronic stress. But of course, I'm not going to leave you there. What we're going to talk about for the rest of this workshop today is how to manage that feeling of chronic stress, the stress response, the amygdala, how any of this works. I will say generally, once you kind of see these things out on a screen, we're like, oh yeah, I completely understand that experience. I've had it a million times. And that's the really funny thing about understanding mindfulness, understanding our own stress. It's simple, but it's not always easy to understand. And it's not always something that we are in the practice of noticing. So once you see it, you're like, oh my gosh, I totally understand this. And that's really, again, the point of today is to help us understand that our stress is a physical 
physiological experience that's happening because our brains and bodies are functioning the way that they're supposed to. It is not possible to rid ourselves from stress. In fact, in many ways, we don't want to. Stress is what drives us to protect ourselves and pushes us in some ways and motivates us to move forward in our lives. But what we do need to understand is when our stress passes that point of helping us, that you stress, that good stress, and becomes distress, that negative stress. And that's what we're going to move into now. Mechanisms for coping with that when things get tough. And this is where mindfulness really comes into play. Let's do this. Let's talk about how mindfulness and stress are related. Well, when we have stressors in our lives, there are two main ways that we can cope with these different stressors. The first is called problem-focused coping, which is all about changing the situation itself, right? This is the taking your hand off of the burner, right? Or running away from the saber-toothed tiger or the septibus. It can also look like creating long-term change. But that's not always super helpful when you're in the moment of stress. I'll ask you guys out there, what are some, some stressors that we can practice problem-focused coping for? So things that you can feel the stressor and immediately change the situation so that your brain says, oh, I have sufficient resources to handle this. I no longer need to feel stressed. Yeah, just walking away from a situation. Absolutely. Yeah, Susan said fire drills, right? You have that moment of, oh my gosh, what's going on? And then you realize it's a fire drill and you're like, okay, I've, uh, that actually, I would even say, Susan, that also applies to emotion focused coping, which is what we're going to talk about next. Yeah. Joan said, when I'm feeling cooped up, I assume, uh, I feel, I just leave the house and take a walk. Yeah. Sue said, making a list. Absolutely. Some of these are touching a little bit on problem focus, which is like the getting up and walking away. I'm feeling, you know, I, isolated in my house, I'm going to get out and take a walk. I'm feeling cold. I'm going to put a sweater on. But a lot of the problems that we face in day-to-day -day life, a lot of the stressors that we face in day-to-day -day life, and especially right now, a lot of the stressors that we are experiencing are out of our control. We can't change the situation itself, right? But we can use what is called emotion-focused coping, to change our perception of the situation. Now, here's where mindfulness comes in. It takes mindfulness, which is awareness of our thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and environment, which we'll talk a lot more about in the next two weeks. It takes mindfulness to become aware, first and foremost, that we are in a moment of stress. And then once we're aware of that, we can start to shift our thoughts, our inner monologue to change our perspective on the situation. Now, the important thing to notice here and to note is that this isn't about eliminating the stressor, right? This isn't about changing the trees that you saw in that slide a couple of slides ago. It's all about changing the perception filter, the telescope, the lens through which we're looking at the situation. Now, some of you might be asking yourselves, well, what does that really do? But if you remember, our stress response isn't just triggered when there is a threat. Our stress response is triggered and activated and sometimes aggravated when there's a stress and we feel that we don't have sufficient resources to handle it. So emotion-focused coping is all about becoming aware that we're stressed and then helping ourselves understand what resources we have to manage it. 
what ability do we have to respond to the situation? Now, this might sound small at first, but when we shift our thoughts, that's often all we need to shift from sufficient resources or insufficient resources to sufficient resources. So we're going to go through a couple of examples here today that are going to get us from insufficient resources in the stress response to sufficient resources. What we're going to do is we're going to address some common fears and stressors that we all might be having right now that are out of our control. But look to how we can use emotion-focused coping to create a mental and physiological environment that enables us to care for ourselves. Because again, we might not be able to change the situation, but the behaviors and actions we take for ourselves and others will drastically change our situations over time. So the first situation uh, or thought that we're going to address as it relates to stress, a thought or situation that's probably triggering stress for a lot of us right now is this idea of, I have no idea what's going to happen. Now we're all experiencing this in different ways right now, but if you want to throw out in the chat box a way that this is personally resonating with you, a situation where you're thinking, I really don't know what's going to happen, and that is triggering feelings of uncertainty, I don't have enough, there's not sufficient resources to handle this threat, feel free to put that in the chat box. Common situations that create uncertainty are a lot of things that you guys have already mentioned, right? Financial uncertainty. We might be feeling job insecurity. We might just not know when the pandemic is going to be over and when we'll be able to resume business as usual. Not knowing how and when we're going to be able to do testing for COVID-19. All of the things that are coming up in the news as a community. Wondering how this is going to affect our children socially and in their education. Even just the feeling someone, Joan mentioned, feeling like I have no idea what's going to happen, just going food shopping. This feeling comes up often in our lives right now and always. Normally when we have this feeling and it triggers our stress response, that stress response is going to trigger thoughts of uncertainty and fear and insufficient resources. When you have this feeling of, I have no idea what's going to happen, what are some of the thoughts you might have about going to the grocery store? What do you what do you expect is going to happen? Tracy was saying earlier about just when we have no idea what's going to happen, fearing that major impactful decisions will be made with a focus on the economy over health and safety, right? And not knowing um, how we can influence those decisions, right? Oftentimes when we have this feeling, our brain automatically goes to, this is going to go terribly. We catastrophize. We look at all of the worst case scenarios that could happen. Emotion-focused coping here isn't about lying to ourselves and saying, that could never happen. I know that's not going to happen. It's just about shifting in our minds the thought of no matter what happens, no matter what challenges I will be faced with, I'm going to be okay. And this can look like a lot of different things right now. It can even just look like emotionally, even if I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. I'm afraid that, you know, my, how this is going to affect my child. Human beings are incredibly resilient. And if we're able to take a moment, just a simple moment to be with ourselves and say, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to be okay. I might not be able to control everything, but no matter what challenges come my way, I will move through them. Again, that's not going to change every outcome of the future, right? It might not change any outcome of the future, except that 
it puts you in a physiological and mental space to move forward and take the steps that you need to take to protect yourself, to move through the challenge, right? Versus being paralyzed by those feelings of adrenaline and cortisol running through your body. The preparation step here, when you have no idea what you want and you really feel like you can't take an action, we want to figure some way to move towards problem-focused coping, long-term change. And the practical tip here is to identify what you want, right? So I call this the SPT. So if you have in the chat box or on your piece of paper, a situation in your mind where you feel like, I'm feeling stressed because I have no idea what's going to happen. All I want you to do is write down that situation. It could be in the chat, it could be on your computer, it could be on a piece of paper. And then next to that, situation. I want you to ask yourself, what outcome do you want? And just go ahead and write that down. And then after you've written that down, I want you to write, why do you want that? Why do you want that outcome? What do you want to feel? And then after that, I want you to write, well, why do you want that? And I just want you to do that five or six or 10 or 50 times, however many times you need to do it, to really get to the core of what you want. When we can't control the situation itself, maybe we want to go to the grocery store. Why do we want that? Well, we want to provide food for ourselves and our families. Well, why do we want that? Well, I want my family to feel safe. Well, why do we want that? Well, because my family is important to me and I wanna make sure that they're okay. Well, why do we want that? Maybe that is just, I want the feeling of security. Now, you might not be able to feel completely secure going to the grocery store, but you can create the feeling of security by doing a small task, like reaching out to someone that you care about and just talking to them and expressing your fears and sharing how you feel, right? Maybe you ride that ladder up and you realize at the end of the day, I just want to feel happy, right? What is one thing you could do right now to help yourself feel happy? Again, it's not going to change the situation itself, but it is going to give you that emotional bandwidth to process what's going on and take positive action moving forward. So the next situation that we've probably all felt in our lives and many of us are probably feeling right now is this feeling of, I've made a mistake. So raise your hand if you've been feeling in the last six weeks like you've made some type of mistake. I know that I would be raising my hand here. There's so many new things going on and it's really hard to feel like we're giving 150% and we're still making mistakes. Oftentimes when we make the mistake, and you can feel free to share any mistakes you've made because I'm sure other people out there are feeling like they've been making lots of mistakes too. So feel free to put those in the chat. But when you have this feeling of, I made a mistake, oftentimes the perception that we have in our brains is, oh my gosh, how could anyone do that? How could I do that? I suck at this. I suck, right? But the emotion-focused coping here is just to shift that thought to making mistakes is the feeling of learning, right? Maybe also everyone does make mistakes. And now I know something new, right? 
And I really appreciate some of you guys are sharing some candid things right now, right? I've made a mistake. Like, I feel like I'm drinking too much as a coping mechanism for handling my stress. Or I feel like I'm texting with my ex, right? Um, someone said, I'm trying to help my son who has ADHD through distance learning and I'm making mistakes all day, right? And the tendency here is to feel like, I suck at this. I should be doing better at this. I should have more self-control. I'm the worst. Unfortunately, that just triggers that feeling of insufficient resources in our brains and bodies. What is helpful about shifting those thoughts to, this is the feeling of learning, now I know something new, is that it grounds us actually back in what is closer to reality. The reality that in order to become great at anything, we have to be vulnerable enough to be a beginner. And just because you might have figured out your self-care regimen or figured out parenting in normal life doesn't mean that it's going to be easy right now. But every time you make a mistake and you learn from it, you're getting better. You're learning something new. That literally is the definition of experience, making a mistake and learning from it. The preparation for this to get closer to problem-focused coping as well is to create a check-in. Maybe you do make a mistake. Maybe you send that text message to your ex, or maybe you make a mistake in teaching your child something at home that just doesn't pan out the way you were supposed to. Ask yourself as you've made that mistake, all right, is there some kind of check-in that I can create for myself right now to succeed in the future? So an example that I like to give for this is, you know, when I started on the GoGa and it was just me working to get a lot of stuff out the door like years ago, I one time sent our newsletter out with all placeholder text in the newsletter, right? And that was just so embarrassing. It was just absolutely an awful feeling, right? Oh my gosh, how could I do that? That's so embarrassing. After that experience, the check-in I created for myself is to this day, all of our newsletters, any placeholder copy is in bright red. And it can be that straightforward. What is some simple check-in you can make to help set yourself up for success? in the future. That is just a practical task you can ask yourself about the latest mistake you made. What is some practical step that you could take to help set yourself up for success moving forward? All right, the next feeling is the feeling of I'm failing. Now, this might seem a little aggressive, a little intense right now, but it's a feeling that many of us are feeling at some level. Maybe we're feeling like I'm failing at doing my job remotely. I'm failing at helping my children learn from home. If you'd be willing just to share in the chat box something that you feel like, whether it's failing a lot or failing a little bit, that you might be failing at right now. One thing that I've been feeling uh, a little bit of guilt and shame for feeling like I'm failing at right now is finding time to move, right? I think a lot of us are super busy right now. And so we're like, well, I'm juggling a million different things and I'm failing to find optimal time to move constantly throughout the day, right? Yeah, Bethany said, I'm failing at eating healthy. How many of us can empathize with that, right? Um, I'm failing at understanding how to connect with my teenager. Tracy, that's such a powerful feeling, right? It's like, I'm just trying to connect with the people I love most and I feel like I'm failing at it. Yeah, Nancy said, failing at exercise. Um, Alyssa said the same thing. And it's because we're trying so hard in all these other experiences, right? Now, the challenging thing about failing, especially when we're giving 150% to try to manage the stressful situation, is that instead of feeling like I did something wrong, right? We start to feel 
like I'm not enough. Like if I'm not a good enough parent, I'm not fit enough, I'm not healthy enough, I'm not empathetic enough, right? And our brain starts to tell us that we're not good enough and that's why we're failing. But that is a natural but logical fallacy. The reality of the situation is that many of us are failing right now because we're beginners at the situations that we're in. Now that can be a hard pill to swallow at first because we might think, well, I've been parenting for 15 years, right? Or I've been doing my job for two decades. But the reality is that in this situation with all the different stimuli, it is a new situation. And so the changing of our thoughts here just looks like going from I'm not enough to this is hard and it will pass. Now, again, it might feel like, yeah, but it's not going to pass fast enough. And yeah, but I should be doing better. But the reality is when we can start to understand that the situations we are in are objectively challenging, that is an act of self-compassion that helps us to move forward and understand that in, in the total vision of what's happening right now, things will change and they won't always be this way. The change that we make from here is to identify our responsibilities. So I absolutely love this word responsibilities. Um, this isn't the actual etymology of the word, but it makes so much sense when we break it down into responsibility. What do we have the ability to respond to? Those are our responsibilities. So much of our stressors right now are completely out of our control. Even if we want them to be in our control, even if we think we should be able to fix them, right? I love the phrase, if you should too much, you'll should all over yourself and it's a big mess, right? Even if we think we should be able to have control over a situation, there's a lot of things that we just can't control. And so asking yourself, what do I actually have the ability to respond to right now? So to the example, uh, I think it was Tracy said, I'm, I feel like I'm failing at connecting with my teenager. We do have the ability to have conversations. We do have the ability to actively listen. We do have the ability to make time to connect with our loved ones, but we don't have the ability to feel other people's feelings for them or make people talk to us in the way that we want them to talk to us. And therefore, those things, even if we wish and want them to be our responsibility, are not. And simply acknowledging that helps us to move forward and actually move forward with the things that we can control. Again, responsibility, feeling like I'm failing at exercising. The only, we don't have the power to eliminate and clear our schedule so that we can exercise as much as we think we should be exercising every single day. But we do have the ability to get up and move for five minutes, right? Maybe we just have the ability to take a nice stretch at our desks, like standing up even right now as you're listening to this and just taking a stretch. That is something we have the ability to do. And so that is our responsibility. All right. The last one that we're going to talk about today is this feeling of, oh, I just have no time for myself. And this can be a really conflicting feeling. It can create a lot of cognitive dissonance because on one hand, we're feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm home all the time. I should have time for myself. And yet it feels like I don't have a lot of time for myself right now. Maybe I'm managing my family. Maybe I'm just stressed with work. Maybe it just feels like my home is no longer a place that feels really comforting for me since I'm here all the time. 
when we have this feeling of, I have no time for myself, the tendency is to think I'm stuck in the situation, right? And there's nothing I can do. Well, we may be stuck in right now. The small shift here is just that the little things make a difference. The small little things. So I'd love to hear from some of you guys, some of those little things, kind of like the things you were saying that calm you earlier in the, in the podcast or webinar today. What are some of the little things that you've been doing to care for yourself that make all the difference. The example that I love to give for this, just for perspective, is imagine that you're home for six weeks or four months, whatever it is, and you know, you've got two different people, one person who just plows through every single day, never taking time for themselves, and one person who spends at least 15 minutes a day doing something that truly makes them joyful. Who do you want to be at the end of those six weeks, right? Or four months or whatever it is. These are some great examples. Stephanie said mint tea, right? Just making some tea, the act of making tea, having that warm, comforting drink. We love that. Joan said reading. Susan said opening the blinds to let the light in. I love that. Wendy said walks and listening to a podcast. Uh, Chris said exercising every day. Tracy said buying a bunch of tulips for the dinner table. Absolutely. Bringing plants, bringing the outside in. Sue said taking at least one watch, one walk a day. Nancy said, allowing myself to watch Netflix in the evening. And I just couldn't resonate more with that, Nancy, because allowing us to have time for ourselves looks like not deciding what is appropriate and inappropriate self-care time. We get to really decide what makes us happy. Yeah, jigsaw puzzles, FaceTiming, praying, taking a bath, walking dogs, setting boundaries. I love that. All of these things make the difference. And the situation right now is a magnifying glass. And we can really see how these situations make a huge, these little things make a huge difference. The preparation I have for you guys, again, if you do one thing before you close your computer and move on to your next meeting, get out your calendar and just put 15 minutes on there for self-care anything you want. It could be watching French bulldog puppy videos. It could be calling a friend. It could be, you know, arranging tulips on your table. It could be planning out a meal. It could be anything that makes you smile. Just plan 15 minutes for that and save those for yourself. So that's it for this week. I know we started with stress and I'm really, all of your inputs were so beautiful. I'm so glad you guys could all come today. 